Hi, I'm Lee Rail, and you're listening to SeedPod, a podcast dedicated to the people shaping South Africa through entrepreneurship, sustainability, and design. Before we get started, please rate us on iTunes and share this with your friends. It really helps us a lot. In this week's episode, for the first time, I had two guests, Brad Shawkin and Andy Golding, who've written a book together called We Are Still Human and Work Shouldn't Suck. Brad is an agitator and thought provoker. He has summited three of the seven summits and expeditioned to Everest Base Camp. He was previously an architect and an entrepreneur and has been coaching, mentoring and facilitating leaders across all industries since 2007. Andy's an employee experience specialist and co-founder of Still Human. She works with companies to craft and build cultures that are always innovation ready, as well as designing employee experience to ensure that people are being switched on and grown. Our conversation looked at what it takes to lead or shape an organization in today's fast-paced, changing world so that work doesn't have to suck. For anyone who's ever wanted to write a book, this is the episode to listen to. You'll get some great insights into the experience, the highs and lows, what it's like to do it with someone else. There are lots of nuggets of wisdom in this one, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Just a quick note before I leave you to listen, this episode was recorded with a fair bit of background noise. I'm not sure how much of it you'll pick up if you're listening in your car, but it's worth pushing through. This was a great conversation. Uh, good morning. Not good morning. <laughs> welcome. It is morning, but welcome Andy and Brad to SeedPod. Thank you for flying all the way to, from Joburg to sit with me here today. Not that Thanks you're for having us. Yeah, just for me, but... Um, uh, we are here specifically for you. That's exactly why we're here. Just add awesome. everything else in around it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very honored to have you here, Ben. Um, so I don't, Brad, I know you from uh, the Seed Academy yeah. and you were involved in entrepreneurship development in that space. And I know you were a, an architect before, right? And so it's, you've, it feels like you've had a, quite a few incarnations in your professional space and now you've written a book. So two, it's, it's two incarnations specifically. One was the career as an architect, which was for about 16 years. And there was a brief overlap where I wasn't really sure what I was doing, but I was moving into this space where I am now, which is, is really working with business leaders around the world, helping them to think differently about innovation, culture, leadership, and strategy. And I've been in this second iteration or second career for almost, this is my 15th year. So there was a little bit of an overlap. Okay. But then alongside that, there's been a lot of entrepreneurial activity, a lot of other businesses, um, but two main gigs with stuff alongside. Uh, and then now the book, which Andy and I did together, um, which is linked to our, our current day jobs, which is um, hopefully will be our day jobs for a long time. Do you work together? We're business yeah. partners. You are business partners in Still Human. Is our that company the... is called Still right. Human. Okay. Co-founders in Still and, Human. Okay. And the book is called We Are Still Human and Work Shouldn't Suck. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I was, obviously I was Googling and trying to do a bit of research before and there, there's no website for Still Human. So, it's um, yes. At the so it was hard to find out too much information. But I, and then I saw, I looked into your background a bit. I saw you worked with Rich Mulholland and and um, so this culture, this company culture thing is is deeply a ingrained in me. Yeah. yeah. So I think my, my story is quite different to Brad's in that I'm not an architect. Um, my first job sucked and I couldn't reconcile that this was the way I was going to live my life. I was going to resent the reason I had to get out of bed every morning. 
And where were you working? Are you allowed to say? I was just working in a retail store. It was actually a job I had taken just after school to pay for my matric vac, but it was my first experience of the working world and it really wasn't a good one. And cut a long story short, at Varsity, we studied internal branding and company culture and we uh, we were told about, we, we, we case studied Missing Link, Rich Mulholland and kind of planted a seed for me. Fast forward a few more years, applied for a job there, ended up working there and proved my theory that work doesn't have to suck. You can work in a great place, have a great experience. And I left Missing Link to start a business working in the culture space. And then Brad and I were introduced to, introduced into each other's worlds by Don Packett, the now CEO of Missing Link. And yeah, the rest is history. So how long have you been working together then? We've been working together for about four years now. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a um, And it's just interesting listening to Andy telling her story. So I, I didn't leave architecture because it's, I, I loved architecture and I loved the practice I built. But it's interesting how you can love something and, and we built a big practice. And even while loving it, it started to suck because I became a prisoner in my own business. And for me, my highest value is freedom. And I stopped being free because of the things that I had to do um, and just the constructs. So mm. it's really interesting that even though you're loving it, it can still suck. Mm. So very different way, journeys that brought us to this point of our core focus, which is, is waking up in the morning to create that the world of work doesn't suck. And it's even more interesting now because just a couple of weeks ago, the um, World Health Organization declared burnout as a, a classified medical condition. And that's linked to, well, there's so much research and statistics linked to the fact that more people die these days through illnesses linked to work-created disease caused by stress, workplace stress. And through a couple of phenomena, the one is a, a lack of a, a sense of safe, safety, social, um, what do they call it? Psychological safety. The other is a, a fear of irrelevance. And the other is a sense of not belonging. And these things create such anxiety mm. and such stress that the neurological disorders, the cancers, the muscular disorders, uh, more people are dying from this than from what we've always known kills us, smoking, sugar. So the place you wake up in the morning to go to, and to spend most, your living, of, your li- waking spend most life. of your waking day, to earn an income for your family is killing you. Yeah, It's all screwed up. It is all screwed up. Yeah. And I think it's not only the place of work. There's this great quote that's it's something along the lines of, you go to you wake up in the morning and you you get dressed in fancy clothes and you drive to work in a car to go to a job that you pay so that you can pay off the car and pay off the home that you're leaving behind empty the whole day. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's a bit messed up. It's it's all screwed up. There's just something wrong with with that whole picture. Um, and then all the Especially values. if you're doing all of that to go and be miserable yes. at the place where yeah. you're paying off the car, paying off the house that you're leaving behind. If, if it's not fulfilling, yeah. what's the point? Mm. There, was, there was some, we heard this research the other day at a conference. We've actually been looking for it to, to learn more about it. But they said that the cortisol levels of soldiers walking into the battlefields during World War II were measured back then. And they recently measured the cortisol levels of human beings going into work today in 2019. And they're the same. Imagine the stress hormone being released of a soldier going into battle being the same as the stress hormone being released by somebody driving in their fancy car to their fancy office overlooking whatever they're going to be looking at being the same. There's something very wrong with that. Wow. And I think it's why that matters is your body is either in a state of fight or flight 
or rest and repair. There's no middle ground. So if that cortisol is being released all the time, you're constantly in fight or flight. And then this comes back to what Brad was saying, all the diseases that are killing us related to stress. Because our immune system, when you're in fight or flight, your immune system is, you're just trying to stay alive. It shuts your immune system down. And that's why we're getting sick so much. We're getting sicker, much more, much more deadly illness. So I'm interested in, into, what did you study? Because you studied architecture, right? What did you... Initially. Initially. So you, you studied more. Oh, gee, I've okay. got... Continuous, uh, continuous massive, learning person. Massive amount of qualifications in, in this space specifically over the years. In, in coaching, in leadership, in strategy, in innovation, in neuroscience, in, in all sorts of things that feed what I get up to. Okay. But uh, yeah, Andy's a, a different kettle of fish. <laughs> so I studied brand building and management. So by training per se, I'm a, I should be a brand strategist, but I knew very early on in my three-year degree, and I'm talking like month three of year one, that I would never work in advertising. It just wasn't my space. Um, it was the internal branding that really grabbed me. That was what, what really interested me. But I mean, the things I've studied are quite vast and varied from dancing to Spanish and everything in between. Okay. So, okay. so more of an eclectic. So this is more of a, this comes from like a place of experience and passion for you. Yeah. And I've, look, I've done some studying around industrial and org psych. So there is that as well. But for the most part, it comes from the lived experience in great organizations and the lived experience in terrible organizations. And then years spent case studying, researching and walking the halls of organizations across the board. So do you believe that every single person can enjoy their job of work every day? Do you think that's a realistic um, I think thing? I think it's completely possible. Um, but there's layers to the question, though, because if you think about my mind immediately goes to that. What's that TV pro dirty jobs? Is that what it's called? Mm. Uh, and I mean, there's some really, really shitty jobs. If you think about the kinds of things intended. people, well, a lot of them, I mean, involve like, immersing yourself <laughs> head under shit, you know, whether it's in a, in a sewer. I mean, they, they're jobs where you put your hand up a up an animal's bum. But for some people, that might be great, fantastic. Well, it depends what your <laughs> what your purpose or your kink is. Yeah. But um, and some people then, you know, we talk a lot about like flipping burgers. How do you find passion? How do you find enjoyment? But you can find enjoyment doing anything. And you can, there's two things. One is in the actual activity um, of enjoying what you're doing. And um, and then the other is in the environment in which you're doing it. Mm. There's, there's nothing that excuses business from not creating the best possible environment for people to have the best possible experience. And that's what our whole business is about, is how people are switched on and grown um, compared to being switched off and depleted. Because there's no neutral moment. In every moment of engagement, of engaging another human being, you're taking their, their experience in one direction or another. You're either enhancing their experience, you're switching them on, having them connect, uh, be inspired, motivated, wanting to be there, wanting to participate, and grown, meaning intellectually, you're taking them, stretching them always to be thinking mm. versus switched off, disconnecting them, uninspiring them, demotivating them, and not accessing their thinking, which means you actually switch them off as well. Mm. So no matter what, we should always be seeking to create positive experiences. And then the question is, how do we do that? And then that's what our work is, is understanding what great organizations around the world, in terms of employee experience, do and obsess about to create those amazing experiences. But, and that for decades has been regarded as the soft, fluffy stuff. 
but it's the hard stuff because it's the stuff leaders shy away from because it's damn difficult mm. and they don't know how to do it. And it also means you've got to show up and behave with a certain accountability. You can't not do it yourself. But what we also found through our research and while writing the book is that the same things that great organizations and great leaders do to create great employee experiences are the exact same things that you need to do if you want to have an innovation fit or innovation ready business. Um, those exact same obsessions. Now, if you want to be relevant in a fast-changing world of business or world, you've got to be able to innovate. You've got to be able to respond, which means you've got to have people that are switched on, participating, not switched off. And this is where the magic lives. And this is what where a lot of our work lives. And it's hard because it means forcing and inviting leaders onto journeys that they never thought they'd have to travel, that they kind of intrinsically know they have to, but they don't want to. Because they've become very comfortable with what they've always done. But what they're learning is that what got them here is not going to get them there. So yeah, I believe that everybody can have a great, so it's about mindset as well. You so, choose. I agree, but I also think that it's a reality that everything sucks some of the time. Yes. Without a doubt. I think that so long as the majority of the experience is positive, there are shitty moments in every job. Yeah. We have We have those moments and we love what we do. We're very lucky in that we get to get up every single day and do what we're passionate about but there are days when it sucks no like or if you're not an admin person and you have to do admin it sucks it's the nature of the beast and it's the nature of being human and i think especially when we're human beings dealing with human beings brad just spoke about the moments that we're creating and there's no neutral moments and sometimes we all create create bad moments for other people and as a leader I think the thing to be very conscious of is, are you creating more bad moments or good moments? And the, you definitely want to be way more to the side of creating meaningful, impactful, positive moments for people. So, I mean, it sounds like uh, like a very, the word that comes to mind is empathy. So, like an empathy, where you, you have empathy for the environment and the people you're working for. And it's, it's a lot about them and not so much about you. And so, it requires those leaders to do some inner work to get to that place. Some serious inner work. It's uh, That's the hard work for leaders who understand this and choose to go on a journey of changing because uh, you've got to change yourself first. You've got to change the way you look at things, your understanding of the impact you're having on your environments and the people around you. Um, and then an empathy for them, for put yourself in their, in their context, in their shoes. Um, and that's where the resistance comes because that's the hard work. The emotional intelligence requirement is high. It requires a lot of self-reflection or a lot of understanding of um, of oneself and how we need to grow. And it is a growth journey, but it's an essential growth journey, but not an easy growth journey. Yeah. In many cases, it's a case of leaders actually have to learn how to lead. Just because you've been placed in a position of leadership doesn't mean you're automatically a good leader. The vast majority of people aren't naturally good leaders. They have to be trained, you know, and, so, and, and it's, it's a mistake that so many organizations make is we promote people upwards, but don't train them and then wonder why they're failing, they're having a miserable time, their teams aren't doing well. They've never been taught what to do. Mm. Yeah. You, know, it's, you would never let a, a person without a pilot's license fly you from Joburg to Cape Town 
why would you let somebody who's not been trained in how to lead people, switch them on and grow them, run your organization or run a team or a business unit in your organization? Or I guess you're an entrepreneur and you've got this passion, you just want to start this thing and you get going and then before you know it, you've got people to manage and you never expected to be there and you don't know what to do. Well, that, that talks to a lot of what we were all about when, when we met originally back uh, in, in, the, in the accelerated days. Because it's exactly that. We've got, you've got a great idea, you start a business, you get some investment. A smart investor is going to want to see what's your scale plan. How are you going to lead this business? And these days, most businesses look for, uh, because we live in a tech era, look for a CEO who's going to be the strategic leading people person to start and, and your CTO, your technical person. But what happens quite quickly as businesses scale up, very often that startup CEO gets replaced as the business leader because they may not necessarily be a leader of people. Might have had a good idea. Well, they're an initiator, but they're Absolutely. not good at carrying they, through. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, and this- Not meant to lead the business as it grows and scales. Yeah. And this, this people thing is becoming a bigger and bigger conversation. We've, um, we've taken our work in a direction of, we've actually created a qualification, a formal qualification in employee experience orchestration. And this is not a glorified HR role. This is not, uh, let's do HR slightly different. Let's polish it uh, and rejig it. It's not that at all. It's separate the administrative component of HR, which is a lot of paper, legals, all that kind of stuff, disciplining, formal disciplining, um, and take everything else, all that switching on of people, the entire crafting of the experience, and make that a specialist um, function. And where the disruption comes is that person sits above the ex that person sits above the exco on the exco with a direct line to the ceo now you want to see exco members squirm because usually when we get invited into yeah that's you exco members as you're raising your eyebrows <laughs> we get invited into organizations and usually it's the exco going fix them and they're pointing downwards and the first question we or teach them how to behave teach them how to lead teach, and the first question we ask is how are you leading them mm. How are you leading them? What's the environment you're creating? Because it's not about below, it's you. You've got to lead a business from the top. So we've put this person above the exco to bring the exco behavior in line with what it is that, that leaders want or CEOs want the organization to display. That gets uncomfortable because often there's a, there's a bad, bad egg on an exco who's been there a long time. And um, But when I say we formalize it, we've actually created a, an what's it, NQ5 CETO accredited qualification in employee experience orchestration, teaching people how to go into organizations and have this single-minded obsession aligned to strategy because you need to understand the business strategy, but then how do you create the entire human experience um, internally around that? And obviously the spin-offs then are, are much better innovation, all sorts of tangible metrics around retentions and illnesses and celebrations and then obviously innovation outputs and ultimately a better customer experience. Well, we know that there's better, we know from the Deloitte Human Capital Trends for 2019 that companies where people are having a great experience have double the customer satisfaction, double the innovation, and 25% higher profits yeah. was the number. I think it's important to note, though, that this employee experience orchestrator, it's not a position that we made up. Mm. Some of the best companies around the world have this person in the role, Airbnb, Nike, L'Oreal. We're seeing local governments around the world putting in an employee experience orchestrator or officer. We're seeing it at universities. We're seeing it in Amazon is looking at this as well. What we did is it's very new here in South Africa. And 
we had a lot of people coming to us struggling to understand what is this? How is it different from HR? Once we cleared that up, then they're going, okay, cool. We want to hire this person. Who are we looking for? What skills do they need and how do we train them? And that's what prompted us to go on this. this okay, so that's what you do course. is you help them find the right person for their business and part you train that person to, to, to fulfill this role. Yeah, it's we a part re- of what we do to help them design as an organization what is the employee experience that we want to be creating. And we have a framework for how we do that, but also to find the right person, train them into the role and actually set them up for success. Because otherwise you're just pulling in a person who might traditionally have been an HR person, knows no differently and saying, you are now the employee experience orchestrator, go forth and be wonderful, but you haven't set them up for success at all. In fact, HR people are generally not the best candidates. There are some outliers to those HR people who are getting offended as I speak, because, uh, and those who we do work with, we say you have to forget everything you know, Mm. because this is not HR as you know it. It's not HR as you've always done it. Um, And they default straight back to their old constructs, and it's not that. Uh, It's a very different way of understanding the switching on and switching off of human beings, and it's about experience. HR, traditionally, what what the HR profession has been um, intelligent people, industrial psychologists and various others who've come into the space, and then have had to straddle two two sides of the same coin, one being the administrator of all process HR, and the other supposedly the people people. But it's impossible for the same person who disciplines you to also be creating all the positive experience. Very difficult um, to reconcile how that works. Also, they require different personalities. One is a much more linear type of thinker who is on the money in terms of the administrative stuff. The other one is much more empathetic, social, humaning human being. Um, they don't often live in the, in the same, uh, same human, but they've been asked. So what happened usually is one of those two would, would be compromised because of the either the one or the other, depending on the personality. So we say, no, separate them. Completely separating. You can't have a goal scorer and a goalkeeper in the same person. They do different things. Mm-hmm. So I'm just the, the question that comes to mind here is at the end, like you've spoken about the disease and the I guess the negative outcomes for people. Has anyone done a study around the impact of this on their outside lives? Because we go to work every day and it forms such a big purpose of our lives. Yeah. If you're feeling fulfilled in your work, I would imagine that the positive impacts outside are, are huge. Yeah, the, place where, the place where you spend most of your day is actually having a positive impact. You take positivity home with you rather than negativity. Yes, I, I have not done, we haven't done the, I certainly haven't done the research on that not because it's not what either. we focus on. Where we completely understand that that's 100%, I would say that's 100% correct is you take home, you take work home with you. So people who are uh, having a bad work experience usually arrive at home and take that out on family. There's a lot of research around that. Kids, spouses, partners get it taken out on them um, because I can't actually release at work. I don't have a, a, a conduit at work. I don't have a... Because it's maybe not a safe space, as you mentioned it's earlier. Not a safe yeah. space. There isn't an understanding of... You can go as far as to even talk about... Um, uh, an understanding of, of mental construct of what's going on for me. You know, the, what they do at work, this is the favorite, is they, they have a, a contract with a, a, uh, an ICAS or one of these other really meaningful, powerful organizations. Phone a therapist. They're on the other side of the phone. Phone someone, talk to them. That's what leaders do. They go, phone ICAS. Well, who are the other providers? There are a few of them. And what they are, they're psychologists who are sitting at 
call center environments waiting to deal with the problems that get presented to them because leaders don't. The leader should be creating that you don't have those problems unless there's something really extreme that you might need to bring in some professional assistance. But it's a leader's job to be creating an environment that builds you, not breaks you. However, they have no idea how. They have no idea how. And I think companies as a, as a whole, I mean, obviously a company is nothing more than a group of people. But if you think of, especially in the context of corporate South Africa at the moment, with this theme of, re, of retrenchments and mass retrenchments that we're seeing. I don't I know have, about that. I've, I've, corporate South Africa retrenching lots of people. Well, I mean, Standard Bank is closing huge numbers of branches. We're seeing is that an innovation thing? Is that an no, uh, economy thing? It's a cost, cost, there's a massive cost cutting exercise. They close so, not, so, sorry, so just, just to get to where I was going with that. If you've got the threat of retrenchment hanging over you and you think you're showing up every single day to the place where you're paying off the house, you're paying off the car and, 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 but you're not actually sure if in two, three months time you're still going to have a job, you descend as a human being, you descend into this place of gloom and panic. Now, if you're in this place of gloom and panic, you're certainly not bringing your best thinking to your work. How can you? And how can you take your best self home? Because you don't know if you're going to be able to provide for those people in the next couple of months. And that uncertainty kills productivity, kills any new thinking. And then you've got these companies, so you've got the threat of retrenchment, but you're driving an innovation agenda really hard. The two can't work together because when people are in the state of gloom and panic, you, you're not accessing them. There's no, there's no colorful thinking happening. Mm. There was no, that, that, that's a, it's an, ex, an extremely stressful situation, I'd imagine. And I can relate to it somewhat having been through a, like a crisis in my own business where I had to change my business model and let people go and, and all of that. It's, it's extremely stressful. I watched, uh, I'm a big fan of the America's Got Talent show. And I watched a guy on an audition a couple of weeks ago. And um, he's a father of a whole bunch of kids. Some of them are adopted. I mean, a beautiful human being. And he did an unbelievable audition. But afterwards, they were chatting to him. And he said something that, that struck me hard. He said, he's trying to set an example for his children. And that's why he came on the show, to show them just what's possible when you dream. And dreams are creativity. It's imagine, imagination. And this is where business needs to be. We need to be dreaming. We need to be in, in the highest access of our imagination. Um, but he said, you can't dream when you're just trying to survive. And I think a lot of people at work these days are just trying to survive. Mm. And that it, I just, it struck me so hard that, that that's the state that we see. We go into organizations. Yeah. People are just trying to survive. And it's frightening. And we sound like we're, we're drama or shockmongers. We're not. We're not. The world of work is in a, in a, in a, in a terrifying state. Um, because, and, and for me, what that go, what the direct cause of the terrifying state is shocking leadership. And I will not retract that statement anywhere. Would shocking you say leadership. unintentionally shocking leadership? Unintentionally, because they don't know how. They don't know any different. Leaders are promoted into the only way business largely has worked out how to promote people, how to career, how to create, create a career tra trajectory is, okay, well, you've grown, you better technically at what you do. The only thing I can do is give you a, a managerial leadership role. You get to a point in your trajectory where your technical capability at whatever it is you studied and have been doing your 10,000 hours in isn't what you get recognized for anymore. Yeah. You get to a point where you have to lead people. Mm. And that's why leadership, if you Google leadership, you get billions of results 
on Google. If you go into the bookstores, it's one of the, the biggest sections is leadership because it's such a, a complex um, requirements of business and human behavior. Mm. And it's not just at work and we lead at home. If you've got kids, if you've got partners, if you are out in community, we're leading all the time. We're constantly, there are no neutral moments. Mm. We're either creating moments that switch people on or switch them off. And we just keep coming back to that. Mm. And it's just not enough focus, which is why also the, the business schools are, are as, as busy and as massive they, as they are. They need to also be innovating and moving forward. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of work in the business school context. And it's uh, even there, we got him moving faster because of it. Sound, you know, as the words are about to come out of my lips, it sounds so cliche to be saying the world's changing fast. But it's true. Sometimes cliche is very real. Um, how are we adapting and how are we upskilling ourselves? You know, this becomes the future of work conversation. We talk all the time about humans need not, not apply for roles in the future, they need to apply themselves differently. That really is the, the leadership conversation. How do you show up differently to bring the best you, to bring out the best in others in your daily goings on? That's leading. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't in any way remove you from the dollar or productivity outputs of your business. Those still have to happen or you have no business. And that is your, your, um, your deliverable as a CEO, as a business leader. However, that needs to be through people. We firmly believe the future of work is human. We need to become even better at accessing human beings. Technology is just a tool. Tech really is just a tool. It enables that we can do things differently, but we're still doing things differently for and with human beings. Mm. I was going to ask you how you feel the impact of artificial intelligence and robotics and those kinds of things are going to be impacting this conversation in the future and, and the style of work and... So uh, our good friend and colleague, Graham Codrington, said it beautifully. He said, it might help more if we looked at artificial intelligence, AI, as IA, intelligent assistance. And I think that's a big thing. We've got systems, we've got data, we've got algorithms, and all of these are so powerful in augmenting our decision making. Mm. They can really free up human capacity. I mean, robots, robots can do the dull work, the dangerous, the dirty they can, why not have a robot do it? Let's free up humans to do the humaning. We're seeing it in healthcare where we're seeing the introduction of small little robotic nurses, which can go run around fetching medication and reading charts, freeing up the nurse to actually go, Mr. Patient, how are you feeling today? And have a few minutes to actually interact with the patient because there's so much research around the the impact Brad's not making human... a weed he's just pouring water <laughs> <laughs> very conscious of it as well thanks for clarifying <laughs> um, these ner- freeing up nurses to have the human moments the human interactions because we know recent research shows that when patients actually feel ca- feel cared for they heal faster mm. and they heal better I mean while on the subject of healthcare we uh i tell a story these days i went to the pharmacy a little while ago to go and fetch some medication and it's a true story it's a true story (laughs) and um i walked in as i always do and i went to the dispensary and normally i give the script to the pharmacist pharmacist disappears and um there's very little interaction comes back gives me my drugs i go to the front and i pay and there's very little humaning because they're just pushing the the you know the production line 
with a delivery line. And this time I gave my script to my pharmacist. He captured it into the computer as he always does. But then he stood there. And there was this moment of like, I'm like, you, you need to go now. I'm here. And, and he stood and I said, aren't you going to go fetch the meds? And he said, no. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, no, look there. And he points to a screen. It's about the size of that. So what's that? A mid-size, quite a large TV. 40 inch, 40 42 inch, inch or yeah. something. And on the screen behind the counter was a camera looking all the way down the, um, uh, the, the dispensary storage at the back. And there was a, a robot going up and down the aisle, pulling my meds off the shelf. Wow. And so what this did is they've obviously invested a few million rand in this piece of technology. But what it just did is it took away what a human would do, but it put the human in a space where you could human with me. We now had a brief conversation. We've never done that in decades, not years, decades. We've never had a conversation. Um, and it, it sparked. Now we have a, a bit of a chat. And again, if you go to the science of humaning, just that and the chemical releases in human connection creates the ability for us to get better. Remember, a pharmacist is a part of your healing process. So every little moment of enhanced psychology, and I, I, I'm not going to get into all the technical stuff, creates, again, just improvement, improvement, improvement. And so that's what's happening all over, mm -hmm. over the world, is that there's robots, as, as Andy said, the dull, the, the dull, the dangerous, and the dirty, dirty yeah. um, is what's being replaced by, by robots. So humans can go back to doing what humans need to be doing, which is mm -hmm. connecting. And I, I saw a cool meme the other day, and it said, uh, one kid was saying to the other one, so so what are you going to be doing in, in 10 years' time? Teenager. And the other one said, I'm going to be doing the things that robots can't. And that's really what it's all about. Is we've got to learn how to start to do the things that robots can't. And that you mentioned empathy earlier. Robots are never going to be able to empathize the way human beings can. So every environment that's going to require that, we need to get good at. And so it goes. And creativity and spontaneous yeah. improv. And I think we can't we can't shy away from the fact that a whole lot of jobs will be lost and to robots and to artificial intelligence. But that's okay because we don't know yet what jobs are going to be created. If you look a couple of years back, there was no such thing as a social media manager, a community manager. Entire industries have sprung up with the rise of social media. So we don't actually know. I mean, I think they say that there's a, I don't recall the percentage, but a, a big percentage of jobs that will be around in 2030, which isn't that far away at this point in time. Big percentage of jobs that will exist in 2030 don't exist yet. Mm. So we, yes, it's a little bit uncertain and maybe a bit hazy, but I don't think we're going to be living in this dystopian, robot-driven, Terminator-esque world. Do either of you have children? No. No. Okay. <laughs> that was a very emphatic. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to say not that I'm aware of, but, but, I, but no. Okay. So as a parent, the, the thing that comes to mind is how do I educate my kids for that future? Because it, I agree that it's it, we're definitely going to be in, in a more human future and the human skills are going to be more praised over analytical skills or anything that technology can do. So I think that um, so it, it's, it should be the question that's at the front of every parent's mind. Yeah. You know, just not so many years ago, parents, the, the thing was kids must go to university, must get education, just have that as a backup. Uh, my darling child, you'll be okay. These days, all of those, those backup degrees are no longer a guarantee to anything. Mm -hmm. So that mindset has to change. The problem is, 
are parents adjusting their mindsets fast enough? But schools are starting to come on board. Schools, the more progressive schools are starting to introduce subjects that uh, talk to the, the required future skills. There are even schools that are now training and teaching kids for roles that we don't know will exist yet. They're assuming where the world might go and they're educating kids. There's one, I think it's called Open Window. Uh, again, do the people would have to do the research. I think it's called the Open Window. And I mean, my 11 year old niece knows how to code. She was taught at school. But that's, but that's now that's a, a role we know will exist. I'm saying they are teaching kids for but roles we don't know what exists. We don't know what for. Sure. And, um, but I think for parents, the most important thing in my mind would be if we go back a couple of decades to when we were more than a couple of decades when we were kids. Speak for yourself. They were certain. So, so, well, <laughs> some of us have moved through our 30s and our 40s and are nearly in our 50s. Others have to still bridge the gap into 30. Yeah. So we, you can work out who's the adult supervision here um, and who's the cheeky teen. So the thing is, if you think about there's certain behaviors that were regarded as um, children must, must think this way, behave this way. It was politeness and respect. And these should all be taught. But at the same time, as fundamental human skills. But we need to add on to that list. Kids need to be taught in a way that embraces empathy, that embraces curiosity, that really goes to those higher levels of humaning at the level of awareness. Also remember, kids of today are not the kids that were kids 40 years ago. Um, their levels of awareness, their levels of global access, they're online, they, it's a whole different world. So we need to understand children are different, but they're still children. But I think it's really important to introduce them to the, the, in the, the most appropriate manner, the competencies and the capabilities that we are saying are the future skills of work. Children should start to access those. And it changes the, their ability to process. You know, let's say a kid bangs a door of the car because it's angry. Scolding the kid for banging the door of the car doesn't take that kid's processing ability or emotional intelligence anywhere other than leaves a scar for that moment of behavior. You really want to be, and I mean, there are, there are methodologies to work with this. You want to be taking the child into processing what just went on for me that I chose to take this out on an inanimate object, a car, as opposed to how do I self-regulate and understand the environment around me, processing, and then the ability to have a, a different level of approach, different level of empathy for context. We don't do this with children enough, mm. but what that'll do is that'll create kids that can perform differently in a more complex world and respond differently. And yeah, but also here's a big one. Parents need to take up responsibility upon themselves as well. I see too many parents because we, we have involvement in these areas a little bit, thinking that that's the, the job of the school teacher, paying huge money for the kids to get educated that, that way. But then the kid comes home and the parent breaks all of that. Doesn't help. I think it's an absolute requirement that we start actually teaching children how to think and how to reason. So critical thinking skills. And in, uh, Brad mentioned curiosity. So that's that ability to question everything and be allowed to question it be encouraged to question it, look for new ways, try and understand. And I think it's fundamental to be able to unlearn and relearn. To, and that comes back to the curiosity, being able to question, okay, I was taught that this is the way we do things, but maybe it's not the best way to do things. 
and that ability to unlearn and relearn and making it safe to do that is, I really think, very, very critical. And unfortunately, traditional education is really good at testing your ability to learn to absorb, not learn to internalize, question, assimilate. Absorb and regurgitate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, education, general education system is very broken. Yeah. It worked, you know, it, it, it worked at a time, it worked it's in an the industrial world revolution. It worked construct. perfectly, but if the world of work no longer works the same way, why should the world of education? It makes no sense. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a huge school of thought. Brad's opened up by talking about the tra- traditional go get a degree, it's a good thing to have behind your name. There's a massive school of thought saying that in the near future, people won't have a three or four year degrees. Rather, they will have a constellation of nano degrees. So the short courses that you do online are with Berkeley X or edX, rather than spending three years studying one thing, spend a year studying a couple of things and just keep doing that over time. So you end up with this constellation of nano degrees mm-hmm. rather than a few macro degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that sounds good because now the, the way that traditional degrees are set up, by the time you in your second year, third year, what you started learning is it's already irrelevant yeah. Yeah. because the, the course material can't keep up with the rate of change. Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned that I dabbled with um, industrial and organizational psych and I was studying through, I was studying correspondence through one of our universities and the coursework was set in the 70s and we were being tested and examined on books written in the 70s and this was happening in the 2010s. I was busy with this and I'm going, it's how? Mm. How is this relevant? Which is why I was saying that that's kind of why I stepped away from formalizing that just didn't didn't make any sort of sense the, one of the my big interests if interest is the right word but I, i'm climate change is a big um passion thing of mine because I, I just look at what's coming at us and what we're needing to change as a society as people um as organizations and businesses we have to re-engineer the way we do everything um, and I, uh, I'm just listening to you talking like this kind of thinking and work is required in order to facilitate that re-engineering. Yeah. Well, humaning is humaning. Whether we're humaning one-to-one in a social context, in a work context, and it's, you know, it's just about being conscious about your actions, the impacts of your actions, and just be better. Mm. Just be better, do better, better humaning. Mm. So I'm interested. The other thing I'm interested in is this experience of writing a book together. <laughs> uh, how long did it take? From the initial, the very first conversation. So we were actually supposed to write with a ghostwriter. That was how the the plan started. And so from the first conversation with the ghostwriter to the day we pushed send on the final manuscript to the publisher was exactly. A year and a week. A year and ten days. A year and a year and ten days. A year and ten days. Sorry, my bad. And what ended up happening was the ghostwriter announced to us as we were about to kick off that she was pregnant and wanted to push the project out by a whole lot of months. A year, almost a year. More or less, yeah. And we just decided no. So in the process of starting to look for another ghostwriter, we. Had, we'd already started chatting to a publisher who gave us a deadline for a first couple of chapters. 
So we thought, hell, let's just dive in and try to write these first few chapters. And that's kind of how it started. We figured, okay, we can probably do this. Mm. Even if the first few times that grunt from you, even if the first few the first few writing sessions, I actually had this counter going, minutes without fights. Well, how long before we have our first fight? Yeah. Because we were, we put, it's definitely not easy to write a book together. It's not easy to write a book. I have no I mean, idea what you mean. I've done, I've done hard things in my life. I've, I've climbed big mountains. I've come back from, from breaking my back. I, writing a book with another human being was the hardest thing I've ever done. The most cool thing, it was awesome, but it's hard because you've got to find your, you've got to find your, your shared voice. Um, and that's, so yeah, so, cause we put the documents, time. we, it took us a year and 10 days to write, but we researched it for well over three years. Before, leading up, okay. leading up and then during. Uh, because it didn't what happened- It not even take us the full year and 10 days to write because we only essentially wrote from sort of February to July was the real meat of the writing time. Yeah, yeah, and the first little portion to get the publisher approval. Which was the February. So, so yeah, it's true actually, it didn't take that. Don't tell people that. Conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, social life for who? Yeah. <laughs> the thing though is that we researched for quite a few years before that accidentally stumbled onto building something really cool because it was just we were just playing around and as a lot of cool things happen but stumbled onto and then crafted something that made a lot of sense uh tested it at a conference the world responded because that's what the experiment was all about i went okay that makes sense and that was what started ultimately our business and that was what started us on the journey to articulate that into a book um, but we put the, you know, the writing together experience itself. We put the document on a, on a Google Drive. Um, so we were writing inside the same document. And our first few experiences where the fighting happened was while Andy was writing, Brad was editing Andy's writing. Good <laughs> sentence. So that, that, because we have different ways of using language punctuation and it, found, it took us a, just we needed to find out what was that going to look like. So we agreed that I'd leave the sentence alone until it was finished for most of it. And then we go write your own chapter. And then we and and then then we went into our own what's our different magic. So then we tried the writing our own chapter thing. Yeah. And then we got to actually the real um, uh, flow, which was what's your magic? What's my magic? And when we worked out that that we both had different things we did really well that came together, that's when we focused on doing our thing. And we also we built a we built a I think there were three key things that that made this work. We know a lot of people have written books. We know a lot of people are trying to write books and just say, I can't get there. How do and you f- have been trying for and years. And have been trying. I, I myself was was trying for years. There were a couple of things missing. The things that made this work, firstly, was actually having an accountability partner was game changing. Even if you're not writing a book together, if you have someone that you're meeting at a certain time to put in a day or half a day to do whatever you're doing, and that person's there doing what they're doing, but the getting their part, Committing to what you're looking to have done is absolutely game-changing for any uh, any goal you're looking to achieve, and this was evidence of it. Uh, you know, there was Saturday, Saturday. We worked. I mean, we wrote the whole book, ninety-five percent of the book, part-time, evenings and weekends. Yeah. So you know, we, we get to the we started to build the business. We were in the earlier stages of our business, and the you know, get to the end of a day, knowing we still got three, four hours of writing. Uh, so we made that a little bit more palatable by doing most of it in restaurants. Yeah. Or coffee shops um, so these were being fed we got to experiment with lots of different environments some were favorites 
And then often on a Saturday morning at like seven o'clock, I'd wake up thinking, oh, I just want to die instead of going to write right now because <laughs> we have hard weeks and we're like broken. But I knew that Andy was waiting there. And so I had to get up, go, get there and then get into it and hit the coffee. Sometimes coffee is already waiting. And then there were other mornings where I got there, I just had a workout and I was feeling alive and Andy arrived looking like she'd just been dragged through a bush. Um, we both had those where we just had rough weeks and but again we showed up for, yeah if we it wasn't up. for knowing that there was somebody waiting for you to show yeah. up I don't think either of us would no. have so that was, that was the first element the second element was having a deadline the fact that we committed to that deadline and it was incorruptible it just pulled us through it was we could see it and it got closer and closer and closer and then having a plan to deliver on the deadline we took that entire writing period and we blocked off chunks of time in our calendars they were there to be written in but we also populated them with what are we going to write in those blocks so no matter what we always knew more or less where we are in terms of the progress because what we didn't want was to have this mad chaotic rush at the end mm -hmm. which we still had because the best planning but even then we could see where we were we at the end in the last few weeks we just switched off to everything else and we finished um and so yeah i'd say those three things the accountability mechanism a plan and a deadline oh, I think in, in terms of the plan what really helped us as well is we had a recipe for each chapter so we had we had the flow of the book mapped out and there was a good way to measure is this section done or where where are we at with this section yeah so i think that was a huge part of the plan in addition to knowing in this block on this day i need to be writing this piece was this is what needs to be in this piece to make it complete. Yeah. And did you have any days where you're sitting there and it's just blank? Yeah. And totally. <laughs> okay, okay, I need to write about whatever it is. And it's like, ah, I can't think of anything. Absolutely. We had, we had that a lot. And then we would either jump to a different section or go do some research. Um, there was, we had the plan. But it wasn't like you have to stick to this. You have to, if you showed up to write workspace, you have to write workspace. If it's not coming, it's not coming. Go where you can actually make a good contribution. Because we had the plan in place, we could always see what was missing. Also, because of the allocation, we could pick up a block. Like if we write now today, we're supposed to be writing this piece. I could swap it around. I could put this in tomorrow, in next week and bring next week's here because it didn't have to be written in a a consecutive flow right um, and that was I think the and, and there's no right way to write a book you know we've got a friend and colleague who his plan was he needed 60,000 words that's what you need so he sat down every morning and he wrote a thousand words that was his plan I'm gonna sit on every morning and until I've got my thousand words out I'm not going anywhere and boom 60,000 words and then only afterwards did he edit whereas we made the mistake and anyone who's gonna try and write a book Write and edit separately. If you're writing, write. If you're editing, edit. Don't write and edit at the same time. It just is agonizing and takes too long. But um, yeah, like we, wheel we, spinning. You just like you will spin. Yeah. You just you don't you don't progress at the rate that you should. Um, so we, um, but we did. What what was great about losing our ghostwriter is I don't. Th I mean, we wrote we're writing a book about humaning, about better humaning, about it's about being human. Did I say human three times there? <laughs> Four times now. <laughs> it's a little bit inhuman to give it away to someone else when it's that personal and it's that close to you. And I think the feedback we've had from people who've, who've unfortunately it's, it's had great uptake 
Um, the people who've read it have come back and said, you can feel that. They can hear our voices. Um, they, they feel like we're talking to them personally. Mm -hmm. And it's very tangible. It's very accessible. Mm -hmm. Even though it's a serious subject, it's very easy to work your way through it. And it was that was that was a, a, a big mission of ours in the writing is we didn't yeah. want to write a textbook. Yeah. We could easily have written a textbook. We wanted to write a book that was easy to read, digestible and fun, you know, just like quite colloquial human. We weren't trying to write at this sort of high up academic level. And I think that's yeah. I totally agree. I think if we'd gone through with a ghostwriter, we would have lost that magic because Brad spoke about our, finding our shared voice and we've both had feedback from people in do know each of us personally as individuals saying that they're reading it and it feels like we're sitting next to them, reading it to them, right. talking to them. And for to have found that for to have found that one voice for two people, I think was mm. was a magic we would never have achieved with somebody else writing it. Have you read the book Big Magic? by Elizabeth Gilbert or not it's actually on my list of books to recently somebody recommended it to me I heard it's amazing so great yeah so awesome. great like lots of tips for writers or any creative person actually and the writing process and how what her belief system is around ideas and how they come and go she and it's really good yeah <clears throat> yeah magic's a big part of our, our everything because we believe in magic. We really do. Magic, whatever that means to you. We, we talk a lot about zero drama, maximum magic. And people get up our noses about it. They go, well, there's no such thing as zero drama. Drama's everywhere. But we're not saying there's no drama. We're saying, what's your relationship to it? How you can either go deeper into a situation and make it a big drama, or you can look at it, assess it, give it the relevance it needs, and look to how do you move away or move it away. Don't move away, move it away from that dramatic context. Because otherwise people just, again, they get stuck in the, in the quicksand of that drama. But a lot of people like to live there because the bigger the drama, the less the accountability. Mm. And uh, accountability is uncomfortable. Mm. So yeah, we, we like the whole move. What, what, whatever magic looks like for you in this moment, how do you create that? So yeah, it's definitely a book worth getting our hands on. Yeah. So wh where are you going with this? Like what, what, what are you... you I, are you here to promote your book in Cape Town? We here. Or? We here. We did a book. We've done a few book events. Um, the book was a look. If you when you write a book, you have no idea what's going to happen. You everybody wants it to be a bestseller. Obviously, we're, we're, our numbers are climbing towards that in terms of the sales numbers. The book is it's constantly sold out in exclusive books. Um, well, I like the cover. Great. It's really interesting. Thank you. Cover. That's great, but it's frustrating as well because the. The book replenishment process is is archaic and we fight and kick and scream and we've just actually said now you know what whatever we've got just recently gone into ebook format it's on amazon and all of the kindle and the various other platforms so we're now driving a big strategy around that that we're just busy uh, crafting because that now means the book is global mm. um, we are also looking at, at global opportunities for publishing but that's not the most critical thing right now it's online and it's not about audible where you guys uh, both next, read it so we're looking at how that might yeah. work um, as a next step very few south african books are are audiobooks but we're having a look that's not an inhibitor for us we're having a look at the practicalities right now i mean think about how long it takes to read a book now you've got to read it and record it mm. and we're fortunately busy um, with our business and building our business because the book yeah we wanted to get out there massively because but you could do it in that. sections like you did the writing of it so well that's how we'd yeah. have to do it but um for us right now we're driving as as a business model 
all of the, the stuff that the book's created because there are now mechanisms and methodologies that we want the world to, well, we are having the world start to work with. And we're doing a lot of work with various organizations in all sorts of different industries around this conversation on, on employee experience and leading for it and designing it and crafting it. And we've got an assessment tool called an MRI, which helps organizations understand the experience people are having compared to the experience leaders think they're having. And that's always interesting. Mm. Um, and it's different from engagement. Organizations uh, focus on engagement. We, we think that's the wrong thing to look at because you know your people are disengaged. You just pay very fancy organizations millions of rands and dollars to tell you how disengaged they are. It doesn't help you. You need to understand the experience that's creating the engagement or disengagement, and that's where we plug in. Mm. We've started to think, we've, got, we've obviously got a lot of work still to do to get this book to where it really can go. Um, and that's podcast, TV, radio, there's all sorts of things. We've got to do a lot of um, social media activity around it. But we're already busy thinking and crafting and planning the second one. I was going to ask, is there another so one coming? There's, there's another one, isn't there? There's two. We think we've worked out what the second one needs to be. We've worked out what the third one needs to be. But we need uh, maybe some time around that because the world's unfolding in interesting ways. But uh, we have a plan for the second one. We've just got to work out exactly how we want to do it. Is it like a, an addiction where you, in, in, in a way, because I know someone else who wrote one book, now he's written another one, now he's written three. Like, is it something like once you've done one, it's you... you I think you do become a little bit of a junkie. I think you, um, see, we, we now know how it works. So that's, that's the first thing is we understand the process. But that's a turn on and a turn off. Absolutely. So we're now looking at how can we work the process. But I think that it's... You In our line of work, the book was also a massive credentialer. People who are in the thought leadership space, in the impact space, uh, these days are expected to have a book out there. The thing is, if you're going to put out a book out, writing a book is easy. Writing a book that is great to read and is impactful is not easy. So if you're going to put a book out, make it, make it meaningful. Um, but then there's this expectation that you won't stop at one. Now, I don't care about other people's expectations. Uh, that's not what, what's going to make me go and put myself through the hell of writing another book. But I can see how cool the next one could be. Now that we've, you know, that moment of Andy and I both had surreal moments of we, we were adamant we were getting the book onto the shelves last year. Before Christmas. Uh, before Christmas. Yeah. And our book was the 19th of December, I think. The we, 19th of December. We, we were both in separate. We had both just been at a breakfast meeting at one um, shopping center in Johannesburg that where there wasn't exclusive books. And we went into the EB and we said, have you got this book yet? Because we knew it was any day. And they said, no, but we see it's, it's coming. It's on the system. And Andy went off to Santon City. I went off to Hyde Park Shopping Center. And um, within seconds of each other, we both phoned because she had found our book on the shelves. I had found the book on the shelves. For me, it was very ironic that it was Hyde Park because Hyde Park's been a, a place of very interesting moments in, in my journey. So it was just like really ironic that I was there. But we both um, had both had the same moments of having to like leave the reaction. store, have a moment of tear, come back, take the <laughs> selfie, share it with each other, and go like, "There's there it is," and it was rad. It was amazing to see it on the shelves, and it's um, it was yeah. that was a pretty wild moment. I, I kind of burst into tears, um, ugly cry tears. Had to walk out of the store, <laughs> compose myself. Yeah. Phone Brad, I was really emotional, but it was, yeah, it was a special moment. It's hard. It's not, it's just it's, like, I see why, you know, more and more people these days are doing it. It's not like previously being a published author was a thing. These days, anybody who applies themselves can write a book. 
But I used to say, because I climb mountains, I used to say, if you're gonna go climb a mountain, you climb Kilimanjaro, it'll be the hardest thing you've ever done. Unless you then go and do a bigger mountain after that, which is what, what happened with me. But at the time that I had my first kiddie climb, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Now, I easily say writing a book, writing and publishing a good book is the hardest thing anybody will ever do. Uh, it's harder than climbing Kilimanjaro. Yeah. What's the biggest mountain you've climbed? Biggest summits would be probably Elbrus in Russia, Europe. Um, but yeah, I've been to Everest Base Camp. Uh, we've summits at three continents. But yeah, I think Elbrus. Are you still uh, climbing mountains? Are you? Still climbing. I haven't. Uh, my last climb was in Peru two years ago. We did a, an expedition through the Salkante mountain range, which is a very beautiful, beautiful, but nasty mountain. Um, and then ended up at, uh, at Machu Picchu as a, as a tourist at the end of our trip. But yeah, there have been a few others along the way over the years and, um, and some close calls. I nearly died on Mont Blanc. I fell. So that's unfinished business. And it's a, that's not, a, so it's actually height is not the thing. It's complexity. Mont Blanc is much lower than Kili, uh, much lower than Elbrus, much lower, but it, it can kill you a lot easier because of what goes on there and the, the dangers that you face. Um, but yeah, I'm still climbing. I'm, um, itching. I, in fact, on the plane now, as we were flying in, I looked out and I said to Andy, I haven't been on a big mountain for two years and I'm itching. And, um, and I wasn't pointing at Table Mountain. Table Mountain's not a big mountain. Yeah, it's a straw. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a yes. pimple. I'm always amused by <laughs> Cape Tonians how they, when I, when I do, so I don't, when I do talks, I don't talk about mountains and things like they're people that are much better equipped people I've climbed with who've done real stuff. Like I don't regard what I've done as real stuff. There are people who've done real stuff and they must talk about that stuff. We talk about what matters to us, which is changing the world of, of human experience at work. But um, Catonians amuse me because they say, when I do talk or in conversation, they say, so Kilimanjaro, is, is, that, like, is that like Table Mountain? And, and my first thought is, is, you know, you need to get better marijuana. But, um, <laughs> but I say like, if you look at Table Mountain, at the, if you're standing at, at, at Cape Town on, on, at Beach Road at sea level almost, and you look up at the castle on top of Table Mountain, now go six times higher and you're now on top of Kilimanjaro. And that kind of pickles the brain a little bit because the next question is, you know, you can climb up Table Mountain in a couple of hours and Kilimanjaro take you six, seven days to get to the top. So no, it's not the same. <laughs> but uh, it's always an interesting question that intrigues me because it's called Table Mountain. But it's not. So, but I, the point is, I'm dying to get on top of a big mountain. Yeah. And other hard things that you've done is this also the hardest thing that you've done as a in your life? One of the hardest things, without a doubt. Um, yeah, it's it's you know what it's it's a challenge that is it's physical, it's mental, and I'm in a rock climb. And rock climbing is oh, wow. I've done a lot of sports. Rock climbing is easily the only sport I've ever done that's more mental than physical, and yeah. it's hell of a physical. Yeah, yeah. But writing a book was just, it's, it's, it's in a class of its own. I mean, yeah, I've, I've had my fair share of sporting adventures. I played ultimate frisbee for, for quite a while. I've represented internationally for dancing. And those are hard. You put in damn hard hours for training. You do nothing other than train. Make sure you're in peak condition. With dancing, we were dancing nine till nine, six days a week. It's brutal. But it's not the mental brutality of writing the book. And I think that's for such a sustained amount of time. I think it, that's and it, the was, big it thing. wasn't also it wasn't that we were writing seven days a week. It was that we were running and building a business 
and writing when we weren't running and building the business. So it's just that sustained, that sustained, just that that pace, that that intensity. I think yeah. is the word. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's exhausting. I think that's the thing. It's exhausting. Also, there's you don't have a tangible measure. You know, when you're climbing mountains, you know, you know the next camp, you know the top. You there's always something to measure against. You can you feel your level of fitness. But with the book, I mean, playing Frisbee, and also just when Andy says ultimate Frisbee, this is not like sissy stuff on the beach, you know, in, in speedos and bikinis. Like I saw what these, this is hectic. This is hectic. <laughs> uh, it's hectic. <laughs> but um, with the book, you don't know if it's rubbish. That moment of truth. So when we, when we were referred, because we were looking for a publisher, um, and one of our colleagues was writing a book as well, and he said, well, I can refer you to mine. And there's a massive, there's a couple of moments of real vulnerability because we connected. So he did a warm referral with the publisher, connected us up. Then we had a conversation with her on the phone. She said, sure, it sounds like an interesting book. Write X amount of words. He has a deadline. Send it to me. So straight away, you're in deadline mode. And we're like, oh, shit, best we do this. Um, because he has an opportunity, you know, it's uh, the publisher we wanted, we believed we wanted. And um, so we sat down to write and put out a piece that we thought, well, this either was going to get us a publishing deal or not. We had no idea how hard it is to get published. We've had so many people come to us since and say, like, can you introduce me to your publisher? I've, I've been turned down by everybody. I've spoken to 40 different companies and I just can't get published. And so we, we didn't realize just how meaningful that moment was. We then had, I mean, I remember we were at, at, at Dofia Zero. We've, we had the date Greenside. in Greenside and yeah. it was okay. We've written, let's push this button and send it. And it was on a Friday lunchtime. It was like this moment of truth. Okay, let's send this thing off and we're going to get feedback on whether we, we are really cut. at each other and we're like, <laughs> oh God. And was this the initial? This was the like, first, the first okay. piece. It was yeah. just the first little piece. She gave us X amount of words and said, send it to me and I'll tell you from there. And um, we sent it, and now the weekend went by, and we're like, we don't know how long we're going to have to wait to hear whether we've wrote, written the complete biggest load of shit or whether there's something in it. Because, you know, for a publisher, they publish what they believe is going to sell. And, um, and on Monday, I think it was Monday morning, the email came back and she said, Brad, Andy, I have three words for you. I love this. And she said, let's talk, let's talk business, let's talk contracting. Oh, yeah. And I mean, my, my little hair is just standing on end because that was a real, because it meant more than just, hey, we've got a publisher here. It meant what we were doing made sense because this is also our work, it was our model, it was our research. So we then um, got into the contracting process. And then, <clears throat> then the next moment of truth came when we wanted to have a whole lot of people write reviews in the front of the book, the pre-reviews and also the forward process mm. and we decided to do something unusual we decided to have a last word as well uh, and you mentioned rich Mulholland earlier rich wrote the last word um, rich writes the last word in which magazine um, longevity yeah he writes an article in the magazine so we asked him because he knows both of us really well he's worldly recognized in this area as well we thought well let's close the loop as well and then and andy mentioned graham codrington earlier who's is one of the most well-regarded futurists in the world. Um, we asked Graham to quite cheekily over breakfast. We were having just a casual breakfast, and we said, "We're going to be writing a book. Maybe you'll want to write the foreword for us." 
And he said, you're going to be writing a book. He said, you've got big balls. You're brave because he's written a few. And he's like, you don't know what you're about to, to go down the, the road you're about to go on. He was politely calling us nut jobs. Totally. And then we, <laughs> we wrote, Graham was traveling somewhere. And we said to him, so remember you mentioned you might want to write the foreword to our book. Um, we said, well, are you still interested? And he said, well, send me something. I'll have a look. And uh, if I like what I see, I'd be, it'd be my, my honor. So we sent him the first draft of the first half of the book. And the first <laughs> half of the book was quite colorful. There was, um, there was a lot of expletive language because the world of work is colorful. And we sent it to him and then we waited and he took his time because he's busy. He's traveling like crazy. Took his time. We understood it. We were also quite panicked because we needed to uh, get moving and we needed to make a call if we needed to get somebody else. And then he came back to us and he said that it would be my absolute honor to to write the, the, the forward to this book. I love what you're doing. Um, and we said, okay, cool. We're going to send you an updated version because we made the call we, to remove some of the F-bombs. All the F-bombs. All oh, yeah, the F-bombs are removed. And we sent him the updated version. By now, we had finished pretty much another a little bit. It wasn't completely finished. And... Um, but he commented, he said he's definitely keeping the, uh, the other version in his <laughs> archive, <laughs> in his archive, because it's, uh, it's special. So, the, so why did you the, take those out? I don't think it did the book any service. Um, I think while we were, while we were initially writing, we thought it made sense. And then the book grew up during the writing process. And it's, you know, we changed the language. It's, it's, it's colorful, just with a different color palette now. Yeah, I don't. So, sorry, so just where I wanted to go was, I think the big thing about writing a book, though, is, you know, if, you, if you're playing an ultimate Frisbee match, you're dancing in a dancing competition, you, you train, you dance, it's over. Writing the book, you write the book. That's the hard hurdle. But then the book lands in the world while you're going through the perceived hardest part nobody else can see it nobody there's 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 you know there's it's only in this case the two of us then it lands in the world so we're breathing this massive very temporary sigh of relief when it lands on the shelves and then this wave of oh shit hits us when it's like now it's out there in the world we really really hope it doesn't suck mm. and that that's a whole you know it's there's no it's not a definitive end point mm. in terms of a hard thing to do because there's a whole lot of stuff that comes after it landing on the shelves. That's actually kind of when it really starts. Mm. Yeah, that's the vulnerability. Sorry, that, that was the vulnerability because we went to a whole bunch of people that are clever people, a good bunch of them published authors, people who are in our area of work, business senior business leaders and people around the world. And we asked them to give us a, a review of the book. And again, you know, fortunately, we, we kind of had a sense we were going in the right direction because they all came back with really good feedback. You know, we had really, really top-notch people. I mean, amazing people who gave us that feedback. Would they have been honest and told you to just shit if it people, was shit? Well, their name is on it. We, so what we did is we said, we're publishing your review in front of the book. Right. Now, they're not going to put their name to it before people read it going, you know, it's like when somebody phones you for a reference on X employee, you're not going to say they were fantastic if they weren't fantastic because now they go into that organization and they're terrible. And the other person thinks, what kind of a lunatic are you that you thought they were fantastic? So no, they were all people. They also gave us feedback. So they gave us a review and they said, and I would do this, 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 and this. So not one of them didn't say, think about this. And their, their input was incredible. Yeah. It took the book to another whole different level. 
And I think that that, that was really helpful to have smart people participating in the process um, and sharing it with us. It wasn't, uh, and then yeah, then there's that moment of truth where it hits the, the shelves and you hope that it, it does what it's supposed to do. So you asked, are we here for a launch? <laughs> we're hosting an event or we were guests this evening at an event, uh, which is the Business Book Club. Um, we did one with, it's run by Jacques Velements. And it's a great initiative Initiative he does. He brings people who've written business books in um, and interviews them. The, the, it's a free event. Um, the ticket is you need to, you're requested, invited to bring with you at least one business book that's on your shelf that you're not going to read again. And then he distributes those into environments that needs them. And he's circulated thousands and thousands of books, uh, business books specifically, to environments where they are much needed and appreciated. So we did this event with him in Joburg early in the year, and it was a it was our first public event mm. um, after the book was was released, and it was a really cool event. And then he invited us to come do it again uh, here in Cape Town. And um, that, so when we knew we were going to be doing your show, we thought uh, we'll, we'll we'll schedule with Jacques, sort of. But we've done some other really cool events. We did a um, uh, a forum. Uh, event at Gibbs, which was a magic evening with a, a nice group of, um, large group of people. And uh, Graham was actually co-host with us and um, uh, Professor Carl Hoffmeyer, who's a professor of leadership. We were on a panel, we got to share our thinking and they, because they both wrote contributions for the book. So that was a really cool event. Um, and then we did another one earlier this year in Cape Town, um, where we were hosted by the Cape, Innovation and uh, Technology Institute, um, because they saw links into the book, and that was our first public event here in Cape Town. So we we're keen to to participate and speak and have panel conversations and anything to get the mm. message out. It's mm. a it's a meaningful message, mm. very meaningful message. What I was going to say earlier was um, there's like a moment of vulnerability when you put something out and you don't know what the world's going to think about whatever that is and oh, yeah. you know i felt that was doing this podcast yeah, and, um, yeah. i did my first event last week and it felt the same thing it's very edgy it's it's uh, renee it, brown calls it a vulnerability hangover like you put something out there and then you're like oh god it's out there what do i do now and it's it's true it's it's out there and it's, yeah you, you do you get this big vulnerability hangover. But then you have the moments of magic where people send you photographs of the book. They send us covered in notes and post-it notes and or there's somebody else who, there's a character in our book called Ralph. Ralph's the villain, he's the bad guy. And um, she is very senior in the world of people, 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 like in the HR context. And she started using this character and she tells us what she's doing. Running, she's running Ralph workshops because Ralph with, Exco. with her exco in yeah. a very senior organization, and it's a wake up call. Like people have, the book was intended to be used; it wasn't intended to be shelved. So it's a tool set. There's a lot of tools that tell a lot of people in our space in the thought leadership space tell you what to do. They don't tell you how to do it. Part of Andy and my our, our core focus the whole time was always coming back to, and this is how you do that. We wrote the book to be read in, in four ways. You can either read it cover to cover, as most people do. You can read it if you're a busy leader. Each section has got a highlighted section for leaders. Come here, have a look. If this resonates, go deeper. So that you're not put off by being busy. Uh, it's highly visual. So it was designed to be read by people who are looking to read the pictures. 
Uh, what's the fourth way? Three way, four ways. Oh, the dipping. Also, it's not chronological, it's not sequential. You can dip in anywhere. Um, you can open it up and read and you'll get it. And so we were very deliberate about that because we have different brain types. And so we wanted that every different type of brain could access what was in the book. And we very specifically say in the book, you know, this is not a book to be treated in a like as a pristine, sacred text. This is a book to be treated as a study guide, write in it, dog ear it, put post-it notes in it. And when we see people doing that, that's why we get really, really excited because yeah. it shows that they're, they're getting some meaning and they're relating it back into their worlds. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we were at an event and um, our book was actually used as the invite for this event. Every one of the, it was 250, 250 people received a copy, a signed copy of the book as the invite. Wow. And one of the guys, the CEO of a company came up to us and said, Brad, Andy, I have to say your book has changed my life. It's changed the way that I lead. He went on to tell us how he's using it in his business. And he said, how long has he been running the business for? 20, 20, 20 years, years? 20 plus years. He says, I've been running this business for 20 plus years. And if I had this book 20 years ago, my business would be fundamentally different and in a better place today. Wow. Um, you don't get much better recognition than that. Or, yeah. Those or are the feedback. moments of magic. That's, Those yeah. Makes it all worth it. Yeah. Uh, also, when, when we get Sonny phoning us and saying, I want to gift the book to my senior leadership, I, how do I get my hands on 20? You know, I read it, it's got to go to everybody else. It's it's that that makes it work yeah. um, for us. So may that just carry on. You know, that's the plan is is um, for it to land on more and more people's desks. And uh, I think I have to read this book. It sounds fascinating. You do. <laughs> I can't guarantee you'll get it at exclusive books these days because of uh, replenishment, but we can sort that out. So, and and also you, it's on Take A Lot, it's on Loot. Absolutely. And it's and it's available on, on, the, on Amazon. And Kobo, all the ebook platforms. Yeah. I, I want to like, is there like a little piece that you can leave the listeners with from the book that can kind of as like a carrot that you can dangle <laughs> for people who might be hovering on, a, should I read this or not? I think we both, there's so much there. For me, yeah, do you have a favorite, do you have a favorite piece of the book? Maybe you should, oh, should yeah, there are lots of favorite pieces. <laughs> For me, I think they're favorite stories. But I think for me, the, the strongest message, the, the thing that's resonating the most, because we've both been thinking about tonight's event. There may be people at tonight's event who came to the, we know there are people who came before. There's a lot of stuff that's developed since that's evolved from the book. Um, and we were thinking about sharing some new stuff, which is important for a, a duplicate audience. But um, the, I think the strong message I would suggest is that people assume, we, assume, we talk in the book about assumption quicksand, and we get stuck in the quicksand of assumption. And um, the most important thing these days for me, or a critically important thing, is not to be assuming the experience you think other people are having, um, because that's where nothing changes, is just double check. And the only way to double check is to actually go and find out. Ask. So I would say just be very cautious of staying safe in the quicksand of, of assumption. It's not safe. I think for me, the, the thing that jumps the most at, at, uh, right now is it's not about the salad bar. And this is a portion that we write about in the book where often people say, 
oh, we're doing all of these employee experience initiatives. We have free food Fridays. We have after work drinks on a Thursday. And real, meaningful employee experience is about so much more than that. It's about the experience that people have from the moment that they arrive in the building, the tech that they're using, the way that they're being led, the space that they're in. It's not about the salad bar. All the free food, all the ping pong tables in the world will never change or never create the awesome employee experience that you're aiming for if people are not being led well, they're not psychologically safe. And it's, it's easy to window dress employee experience. And a lot of companies think that they're getting it right because they're doing the easy stuff, but staying very far away from the hard but meaningful stuff. Amazing. I think it's time You've to wrap up. You've been listening to Seapod. Uh, is there anything else you want to add to that? Thank you so much for your uh, attention. No, it's, I know it's not always easy to listen to a conversation that's an hour or more. And, and you, for book number two and three. Thank you. Uh, you. I really appreciate those who are listening to this conversation. And I hope you're getting as much value out of it as I am. And I'm walking away with nuggets of wisdom from each conversation. And I trust that you are as well. You might have noticed that there's a little bit more noise in the backgrounds of the recordings. That's because I'm not in a studio anymore. I have gone on my own. I've got a mobile setup. And so I'm doing it all myself. I'm recording myself. I'm editing myself. And so if there's any feedback, if it's too loud, too soft, too noisy, let me know. If you if you have any feedback as to the content of the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, keep listening, keep sharing, and keep being inspired. <laughs>